This morning's reading is 1 Kings chapter 18, and we're reading from verses 16 to 46. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it to pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called in the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they had made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he is sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench round it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull into pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water, and pour it on the offering, and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God, 
and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to Kishon Valley and slaughtered there. Then Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of a heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant, and he went up and looked. There is nothing there, he said. Elijah, seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, go and tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rose off, rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. Amen, and thanks be to God for his word. Thanks, Elaine. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come to your word, the story of Elijah this morning, and we would ask by your spirit that you would make this alive to us and us alive to you. Amen. Well, this is the, the height of the story of Elijah. It's the exciting bit, the dramatic bit. It's maybe the bit that you remember. I certainly know when I think back to Sunday school days, this is the bit of the story that sticks in my mind. But it's important to remember that we've taken three weeks to get here. Back in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah said just in one verse to the king, there will be no rain. And we then proceed through three years in 40 verses as the prophet wanders. If you've got a Bible, just, just maybe just flick back on chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. Can, can I say this? It's, it's quite good. We have the words of the, the passages on the screen, but it's actually really good sometimes to have a Bible before us that we can flick back and forward. I always say to congregations, it's, it's good to have for two reasons. One, if the preacher's interesting, you can follow the story with them. But secondly, if the preacher is boring you that morning, you've got a book that you can read um, instead. Can I encourage you, if you've got a Bible, I normally say to folk to bring a Bible with them to church, but certainly if you're gathering um, just to, to, to watch this on the television, bring a Bible with you that you can follow the story as we do it. But to recall the bits of these 40 verses that we have looked at in chapter 17 and 18. First of all, Elijah, having given that dramatic, there will be no rain, went and was fed by ravens and drank by the brook, by the ravine. And there Elijah learned to trust God to literally give him each day his daily bread to provide. And then we're told that the, the brook dried up and so Elijah was sent right up into the north, away from Israel itself into a pagan country of Sidon. And there at Zarephath, 
in Baal country, in the very place that Jezebel had come from, he met a widow, a pagan widow. And he was told to trust her, to receive from her in her poor household the food that he would need for the next two years. And he shared her food. He also shared her troubles. Her son in that time died and he shared her grief, her questioning of God. Hidden times for Elijah. And then we saw last week how as he returned back to speak and confront Ahab, first of all he met up with Obadiah. And Obadiah had been there with Ahab the whole time. Obadiah, another believer, but secretly doing the right things and hiding the prophets. A hidden ministry that perhaps Elijah didn't really appreciate, being faithful in the very courts of the king that had done so much wrong. And it's only after these three chapters, these three parts, that we come to the dramatic confrontation on Mount Carmel. It matters. Because if all we had of the story was the passage that we'd read, we might think that the Christian life was all about dramatic confrontations and fighting authorities. And sometimes that's the way that some people can portray it. Fight the good fight. Take on the world. Tell them what the truth is. But actually, for most of us, most of the time, that would be quite hard to relate to. Because that's not how our Christian life works. But then the other passages remind us that there's more to it than that. That we have to learn to trust God in the undramatic and that that's just as important. In fact, you can't stand with Elijah on Mount Carmel and confront the untruths and the unprofits and all that's wrong unless you have a faith that has wandered by the ravine and learned to trust God. That has walked with the widow from Sidon and learned her life and her fears, cried her cries and spoken of God's love when it's difficult and full of questions. We can't do the dramatic things as a church, the missional things, the big things, unless we've walked with Obadiah, realizing that a lot of it's about wrestling in the everyday and working out what's right and how we live for God. This passage that we've come to now, though, is certainly dramatic. And that gives us some problems, if we're honest, not just because our lives are not often dramatic, but because, well, it's awful confrontational, isn't it? Elijah standing up before the, the people and saying, choose God or Baal, make a decision one way or the other, fire from heaven and judgment. And our society struggles with that because we're sort of used to being tolerant of being able to say, well, it's sort of true that, it's sort of true this, and can't they all be true? Where we want dialogue, where we want to think that there's lots of different ways of worshipping gods, maybe lots of different gods. And here is Elijah saying there is one God, one way, and, and you need to choose and respond to that. We live in a, a day where people don't want absolute truths and rights and wrongs. And of course, the passage ends in Religious violence, doesn't it? The prophets of Baal are slaughtered. And there's a little bit of us hearing the world saying to us, well, you know what, if you get really enthusiastic about religion, that's exactly what you'd expect. 
that people get killed and they've got a point, haven't they? Christians have sometimes acted obnoxiously and arrogantly and aggressively and it's caused fights. Think of the history of wars and crusades. But then, we believe in one God. One true God. One God who made the heaven and the earth. And we believe that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, the one true savior, the Lord of the universe, who died on a cross for all humanity, and at whose name every knee shall bow in earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And if we believe that this good news is not just for Christians who go to church, but is for atheists and agnostics, is for Jews and pagans, is for men and women and black and white and straight and gay and good and bad, it's for everybody, then we are proclaiming an absolute truth. The way, the truth, and the life. We are inviting people to make a choice. Make a decision. Otherwise, it's just believe what you want, isn't it? And it doesn't really matter. That certainly isn't the Christian faith. So what can we learn from this dramatic passage? Well, I want to suggest a number of things. The first is this. Excuse me. In the Bible, context is always important. If you've ever got a a passage you're struggling with, I would always say, get out the scriptures, read around it. Try to understand what it's saying in the wide. Elijah here might look like a guy who just wants a fight, a warrior. And there are certainly some Christians who seem to be like that. But Elijah hadn't just come battering people with truth over the head, with an intellectual argument, you must believe this. Rather, we've learned already that Elijah was a man who lived it, who suffered it. A man who had gone through three years of intense testing about what was true about it all. He knew how it was to trust God. He knew how it was to struggle to trust God. It wasn't just that he'd read the book of Exodus and that it said that God provided for his people. He'd actually experienced it in the dryness of the ravine, in the, in the difficult places. I wonder that right now when we are not doing dramatic things, we're just hanging on there, homeschooling our children and keeping things together at this difficult time that we're being invited to trust God, to, to learn for things that are to come later. And Elijah had learned God's compassion. You know, he was to go up against Jezebel, who was from Sidon, and confront her in all her evil. But the interesting thing was that God had taken him to another woman from Sidon, in Zarapeth, that widow, and he'd learned to get to know her, to share her pain and her grief and her questions. So we've got an Elijah, a man who struggled in the dry places and found God to be true, and a, a man who's learned to relate to other people and found God to be true for them as well. And so as Elijah comes to Mount Carmel and he confronts the, the people of Israel with this choice, this real God that they need to know and they need to serve and who wants to bless them, he's doing it not just because he's read a theological textbook and he knows what the truth is, but because he's actually learned that this God is to be trusted, that this God has compassion, that this God has the power to provide. And that's important for us as well. We can't just be people who are warriors for God in in a culture war. We have to be people who live it 
in the deep places. And actually, part of the reason for that is in our world where authenticity and integrity matter, we will not get a hearing unless when people look at what we are saying, they are able to say that it has touched our lives in the ordinary and the undramatic and the difficult. The second thing we can see from this passage, though, is that opposition is inevitable. As Elijah returns to the scene, he's greeted with abuse. Ahab says to him, you troubler of Israel. You're a pain in the neck, Elijah. You're a disruptor of the peace. You rock the boat. You say things that make me feel uncomfortable. I don't want to hear what you have to say. I think a lot of people react like that today to to Christians. You're saying things that we don't want to say. You're saying things which challenge the world that we have. Even as we speak, even as we live in a different way, it, it leaves people feeling uncomfortable. You troubler of Israel. Of course, Elijah responds by saying to Ahab, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You are. Now, we have to be careful with that claim. Sometimes it is us that's caused the trouble. Sometimes we've just been obnoxious or we've said unloving things or we've been proud or haughty as Christians. But actually what Elijah is saying to Ahab is, is the problem that you've got here isn't me. The problem that you've got here is God. It's God that's making you feel uncomfortable because he is the Lord of the world. He is the master of Israel. He is the one in whom there is, there is truth. And you've walked your own way, Ahab. And that's the third point here. That what Elijah presents as he presents the gospel is that there is a choice to be made. The true confrontation on Mount Carmel isn't actually with the prophets of Baal. The prophets of Baal have made up their minds. They're pagans and they worship this other god. The true confrontation is with the heart of the king and the heart of the people. You see, Ahab is a man who knows about God. He's the king of God's people. He's the heir of David and Solomon. He's the heir of a people whose history goes all the way back to Abraham, to the promises, to the coming out of Egypt, to the Red Sea, to the covenant that was made with Moses, to Joshua entering the land, to all of those things. The problem for Ahab is he's always trying to reconcile this heritage that he has, this, this, this God of Israel with, with pleasing other things and most particularly with pleasing his wife Jezebel, who is a fanatical pagan and a worshipper of Baal. And he starts off, we read this in chapter 16, if you look back, Ahab started off by, by in his capital, which would have had a temple to, to the one true God. He builds a temple to Baal as well to keep his wife happy. But it's not enough. She begins to kill the true prophets of God, and Ahab does nothing about it. And Elijah is here before Ahab and before the people saying, there is a choice to be made. God isn't a hobby you can do in your pick and mix spare time. God is for the whole of life. He made the whole of life. He made the whole of the world. He makes sense of it all. The command is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And you can't follow him with half a heart. 
And the important thing in this story isn't Elijah and the prophets of Baal, it's the people. The people who up to this point won't decide, and they're they're going one way and they're going the other. Verse 21, uh, Elijah says, how long will you waver between two opinions? How long will you waver between two opinions? And the, the, the Hebrew actually says, how long will you limp between two things? How long will it? It's as if they're hopping one foot here and one foot there. I suppose in modern political parlance, we would say they're flip-flopping between two things the whole time. This kingdom has a heritage. We were told in chapter 16 that Ahab had allowed Jericho to be rebuilt. And that was very significant because the history of Israel was the the first thing they had done when they had entered the promised land as the walls of Jericho had fallen and the city had been destroyed. And God had said, this city has never to be rebuilt. Ahab just ignores that heritage, that story. Then Elijah as he builds the altar to, the God and to God and he restores it, we're told in verse 31, he took 12 stones for the 12 tribes to which God had said, you shall be called Israel. And you see, what Elijah's doing here is he's recalling the story of Israel because when Joshua crossed the, the Jordan into the promised land, the one thing he did is he took 12 stones for the 12 tribes. And he said, as he set them up as an altar, he said to the people, remember who you are, that you are the 12 tribes that God has called into this land. And Elijah is recalling that. He's saying to the people, not just this is what you should do, but remember who you are. It's something that's very important for us. Because we're also people who flip-flop, who try to serve God and other things. We, we, we say we're Christians, and yet we follow our ambitions and our materialism and our pleasure and our politics and all sorts of other things that we put alongside God. And the call is to remember who we are. That's why we began the last few weeks with those pictures, with those words that said, I have been baptized It's a reminder to us, this is who I am. This is the decision I have made for my life. This is the God that I have promised to serve. This is the Jesus who died for me, whom I gave my life to because he'd given his life for me. This is the spirit that I received. It's interesting, if you read the New Testament, as Paul talks to the churches, and he talks to churches that are sometimes wandering far from what they should do and acting in all sorts of different ways, he doesn't say, this is how you should behave. He repeatedly says to the Christians, remember who you are. Remember who God made you. Remember what Christ has done for you. And stop flip-flopping. Come back. Friends, at some point in your life, you have made a decision for Jesus Christ. At some point in your life, you may have joined the church. You've stood up here and you've made profession of faith. And if you haven't done that, then by all means, give me a phone call and let's talk about it. 
But there is a sense if we've done that and if we've made that decision for God that every time we come to worship, we hear the call again. Remember who you are and what I have done for you and how I have called you and the purpose I have given you in your life and the forgiveness I have given you and the promises I have made to you and come back with all your heart and your soul and your mind and I will give you rest and I will give you peace. There is a choice to be made, not just once, but every time that we come to worship and we say this is who we are. And then at the heart of this, there is also a question. Who really is God? The Baals think that their God Baal is the one. And they spend the whole day praying to him, shouting to him dancing around. They use their blood magic and they wail and they shout and they cry. But the passage makes clear to us time and time again this one simple truth. Nothing happens. There is no response. There is no answer. No one pays attention. And what the passage is hammering home is one thing which is not said but almost doesn't need to be said, which is just simply this. Baal doesn't exist. The whole of Israel has turned aside to this God and this God doesn't exist. This God can't deliver. This God is an empty shirt. And it doesn't matter how much they believe it. It doesn't matter how convenient it is. It doesn't matter how good politics it is. It doesn't matter how much it keeps them in with the Sidons or the Queen or anything else. This God cannot deliver. It doesn't matter how sincerely they believe it. It's not true. That's always the problem with false gods. They don't deliver. And we keep believing the lie, don't we? That if only I have a bit more of this or a bit more pleasure or, or, or I can achieve this, then, then I will be satisfied. And our whole life says it's not true. The only time we've found true peace is when we've kneeled and come to the living God who is true and faithful and dependable. Nothing else has ever made the cut. And yet we keep believing the lie. It's interesting here, We're told there's 450 prophets of Baal. Actually, there's also 400 prophets of Asherah. So there there are 850 enemy prophets and only one Elijah. You're doing an opinion poll here, 850 versus one. But here's the point, the numbers actually don't matter. I find it really interesting that in our day, you know, we are obsessed with opinion polls. What are the people saying? Anytime you have a discussion about what's right or wrong, somebody will take out an opinion poll and say 49% of people believe this and 84% of people believe that. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter how many percentage of people believe something if it's not true. If it's not based on facts. Rabbi Burns famously said, facts are chills that win a ding. At some point, the opinions and the flattery and the things that people want to hear don't matter. What is the facts? What is the truth? Numbers don't matter. Elijah, in this passage, says, I'm the only one. 
There's 450 of you and just one of me. Now, actually, that's not true either because we've already been told that Obadiah hid 100 prophets of God and we'll be told later on that there are 7,000 true believers. Elijah's wrong about that. But here's the main point. The numbers don't matter. How many is on which side of the opinion doesn't matter. What matters is what's true. And the Bible proclaims one truth that makes sense of everything. That there's one God that he made everything. That he ordered the world, the light, the day, the sun, the moon, male and female. That he calls people to him. That he gives us a truth and law to follow. That we rebel against him and he welcomes and reaches out to us in Jesus Christ who died for us. That he holds all eternity in his hands and one day in Christ he will judge it. Doesn't matter how many people believe that. Doesn't matter how sincere they are about whatever they believe instead. It doesn't matter that people feel that the truth should be a different way. What matters is what's true, what's right. It's interesting that when Robbie Burns said that facts are a chill so that wouldn't ding. It was said in a poem called The Dream and he was writing to King George III and he complained in that poem that there were all sorts of people telling George III what he wanted to hear, the things that appealed to him, the things that didn't offend him, the things that, that made him feel good. But Burns was going to confront him with the uncomfortable truth. And the truth was he'd just lost America and he was a pretty rubbish king. And he might be offended by that, and it might not suit the narrative, but it didn't matter because it was the facts. And so as we read this passage, we're reminded it's not the numbers, it's not how much people believe different things, and it's not even the technique. Sometimes we think that as a church, technique's important. We, we need to, to find a way to get people to believe the truth. So maybe if we did our services a different way or if we ran a different program or we did outreach in this way, uh, I'm, right now I'm into thinking about good coffee or maybe if we have scones at every service, we'll get folk to come in. But you know, the one thing that we learn from this passage is, is it's not about techniques either. Elijah might easily have said, well, I've got a great technique to bring fire from heaven. If we can just get some fire lighters here and some good tinder, everything will work. But no, he, he gets water poured on the altar. He makes it almost impossible because he's going to rely on one thing, that God is real and that God is powerful. You know, as a church, we will certainly think about our mission strategy and we will certainly think about the way ahead. But here is one thing that we might learn from the prophet Elijah is that we need less strategy and we need more prayer. We need less thinking about the way to do it and we need more trust in the living God. Because when God moves, things change. When God moves, people see the truth. When God moves in us, everything begins to happen. A last word, perhaps, about the thing that we can't avoid. What do we do with the violence of this passage? Elijah has the prophets killed. 
Well, the commentators have different explanations for that. Some of them think Elijah overstepped the mark. God didn't tell him to do that. He just got carried away and we could criticize Elijah. Well, maybe that's the case. Others suggest that the, this was God's judgment. It was God's right to judge these prophets. The, the, the worship of Baal was a corrupt worship. It was a worship that involved perhaps child sacrifice. The truth is, I, I, I don't know. I can't explain it. But the passage still has something to teach. The context of the God that invites us to trust. Because it's only as we trust that we can speak the uncomfortable truth to people. It's only as we find God in the ordinary and in the dry places that we know him to be true and therefore we have a message of hope for the world. But in the end, God is God, the living God, the true God. And so the invitation here today is to decide that we are for him, that we will trust him. Whether we find ourselves by a brook or in a drought or in a strange place that doesn't make much sense, we will trust him. So today, if you hear God calling on you, I would invite you just to pray a simple yes. I am yours. I am for you. Amen. Let's pray.